Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. It's Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. The year, by the way, that will never end. But don't worry, we're close. And so is the election. And by the way, speaking of the election, uh, President Trump has a litany of complaints. I mean, look at the list. 60 Minutes interview he just did with CBS. The Debate Commission. Don't forget the upcoming debate. Moderator Kristen Welker. Mail-in voting, of course. The rigged election with an exclamation point. And now maybe even the AG Bill Barr on his list. I mean, really? We're going to explain and explore. Plus, will Nancy Pelosi give President Trump a victory on a COVID-19 stimulus bill before the election? Well, will hell freeze over? How about that? We'll discuss the possibilities. And the Jewish vote. Can President Trump make inroads in 2020 or will his turnout among Jews smell a lot like a filter fish? Hey, I grew up Jewish. I'm not a big fan. I'm just saying. All of that on the program today. But first, our newsmaker, I want to bring in one of the brightest legal minds in the country and host of the podcast called The Der Show, famed lawyer and Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz. Alan, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Well, I don't know if I want to be on the show of somebody who has just insulted my favorite food in the world, gefilte fish with a little bit of horseradish. Come on, what's wrong with the smell of gefilte fish? Alan, we can spend the whole 12 minutes debating gefilte fish because I got to tell you, I'm going for double on the matzo ball soup. I pass on the gefilte fish. I apologize right now. It's a genocide. A generational issue. My kids have the same thing. Gefilte fish, they say that's why Gentiles are afraid of us. <laughs> Gefilte fish, they've tasted it and they say if that's what you guys eat, there's something the matter here. Fair, fair so. enough. All right, on the, on the show today, Gentiles and Gefilte fish. Perfect. Uh, hey, uh, Alan, let me get your sense of this election. Uh, how's it smelling, by the way? Trump versus Biden. How do you see it shaking out? I don't think we can predict. You know, we try to predict based in 2016. Trump clearly has a lot of voters who won't admit the pollsters that they're voting for him. So I think it's tighter than the polls show. But, you know, we'll know in two weeks. Uh, I do think I hope it will be a, an election that will be decided at the polls, not in the courts. I just don't want to see uh, a repeat of Bush versus Gore. I think that puts the courts in an impossible position. It hurts the integrity of the Supreme Court. So I want to see either way a decisive election. Let me ask about that, Bush v. Gore, unfortunately. It does seem like this could be potentially the road we're going down already. The lawsuits are they're starting yeah. to fly fast and furious. What, what do you think? Is this going to head to the Supreme Court? I know you don't want to see it, but still. It could. No, it could. Look, there was a decision just two or three days ago in Pennsylvania where the court divided four to four. And if the case goes to the Supreme Court and the deciding vote is cast by Judge Barrett, who was just nominated by one of the litigants in the case, that would, I think, create some doubt, at least among some skeptics, as to whether or not she passes the test of appearance of bias. I don't think she's a biased person. She struck me very positively during the confirmation hearings, but unconscious bias creeps in. We saw that Bush versus Gore was decided strictly along partisan lines, five to four. This four to four decision 
was pretty much along partisan lines with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the three liberal justices. And who knows where he'd be if we had a decisive case. But um, that's a potential scenario which would create a lot of distrust of the court among some people. Alan, what should we look for after November 3rd as it relates to what a lawyer does in cases like this? I mean, what, what, should, what should voters be aware of? I mean, are you concerned at all about what Donald Trump is talking about, this uh, rigged election or at least some of the concerns about mail-in balloting on a, such a widespread scale that we're about to see? Look, for the first time in our history, we're going to see many, many, many votes cast. Uh, first time in my life. I've been to the polls every year since John Kennedy, and I'm casting my vote this year by mail. There will be some mistaken ballots, and there will be a small number of fraudulent ballots. But when you compare that to the number of people who will get to vote who would not have gotten to vote had they had to come to the polls, I think on balance, it's something that should be encouraged. We should look in every possible way to eliminate fraud or mistakes. And the, But there will be some. There's no doubt about it. But when you contrast that with the number of people who will vote because they can vote by mail but wouldn't have voted, had they been required to go to the polls, I think the trade-off is worth it for purposes of democracy. Well, and, and that's the thing. You say there, there are going to be some issues. We've already there seen are. some, some uh, issues already crop up before the election. So then the question is, if there are going to be some, even if they're isolated incidents, I mean, as we know with Bush v. Gord and hanging chads, I mean, th this, this could be key. If it's a close election, I mean, an isolated incident here and there in a Florida and Ohio or whoever it is, North Carolina, could make a difference. There's no question. Look, I was the lawyer for the Palm Beach voters in Bush versus Gore. This was a group of Jewish voters who accidentally voted for Pat Buchanan, who was an anti-Semite and who Jews hate uh, because his name was improperly placed across the butterfly ballot from Joe Lieberman. And Jews wanted to vote for the first Jewish vice president. So they pushed in that hole and they ended up voting for Pat Buchanan. There were probably enough votes for Buchanan to have changed the uh, outcome of the Florida Electoral College vote, which would have changed the outcome of the presidential election. But, you know, the courts allowed it to go forward and uh, George Bush became the president. So we'll see uh, how what happens if there are closely contested votes. I don't think we're going to get anything like Florida, where 500 votes may have made the difference. Mm -hmm. Even in the last election, I think 11,000 was the smallest distance uh, in a, in a mm -hmm. contested state like Michigan. So, you know, we have to wait and see. But every fraudulent vote should be exposed as fraudulent, not counted. And every good vote should be counted. That's the goal. Alan, you've gotten to know this president uh, pretty well. What, what is your sense of his mindset going into this election as it relates to, uh, you know, not just mail-in balloting, but he has spent his life, let's be honest, I mean, he spent the majority of his life in court fighting battles. It would just make sense that this is exactly the way it's going. Oh, there's no question about that. There's no question he has his legal team geared up. I haven't spoken to him since I made the argument against his impeachment on the floor of the Senate. You know, I'm a liberal Democrat. Right. I have voted my life for liberal Democrats in presidential elections. I did vote for Bill Weld as a Republican when he ran for governor of Massachusetts. But, you know, I'm not part of his political team, and I will play no role if there is uh, court fights. Uh, my only role was because I believe and still believe that the House impeached uh, President Trump on unconstitutional grounds. And I was there as much to defend the Constitution as to defend any particular incumbent in the office of president. 
What do you think about what he's making, what he's saying, and many conservatives are saying about Hunter Biden? It does seem like now we're starting to see a trickle, trickle, trickle situation here, which is what they've been saying, that the president and others, for a very long time about Hunter Biden. Look, I agree. I think that the Biden family has mishandled it. I think they should have come out on day one and laid out everything that happened. It's going to come out in the debate, obviously. The first question to Biden will be, is the laptop authentic? Do they contain Hunter Biden's emails? Did he arrange a meeting between you and some guy from the Ukraine? Um, all those questions will come out and uh, he's going to be obliged to answer them. He's not going to be able to duck them at the debate. Yeah, and at the same time, he'll just say this has been dismissed, but he's talking about a New York Times uh, debunked article. He's not talking about, I mean, we see the emails right there. It just seems like this story's got legs, but I don't know if it's going to have any traction ultimately in November. Well, we don't know. None of us knew whether or not the Comey revelations would have traction in 2016, and they may have had an impact on the election. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if an election is close, there are so many factors that can impact a close election. Certainly, the Hunter Biden story will have an impact with some voters. I don't doubt that. Yeah, Alan, uh, the president wants to, he, at least he's wondering if Bill Barr in the AG's office is going to actually somehow start a special counsel investigation into, into this uh, Hunter Biden uh, material. What do you make of some of the concerns he's got about Bill Barr? I wonder if, the, I hope this is not going to be another Jeff Sessions situation, because he, he's been a big fan of Bill Barr, but this seems like he, he's concerned about what Bill Barr is going to do here. Bill Barr is a very honorable man. He was a very good attorney general under Bush. He was a very good private lawyer. Uh, I think he's done a good job as attorney general. He has to maintain his neutrality. He's not the lawyer for Mr. Trump. He's the lawyer for the United States of America, and the Justice Department has to do justice. And if he thinks that an investigation is warranted, I'm sure he will open one up. But I doubt there'll be any disclosures about the nature of the investigation before the election. The Justice Department has rules about that. And those rules were tragically broken by Comey in the Hillary Clinton case. But two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah. On the Durham report, doesn't look like we're going to get any sort of answers on that Durham report about what potentially happened with those Obama administration officials. Yeah. I, uh, what do you think? I think there should have been a report a few months ago, uh, but Durham is a very, very capable and experienced prosecutor. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he'll come up with a very strong report, but it won't be until after the election. And um, uh, I think it'll be very incriminating against some people. Uh, look, there's no question that the request for a FISA warrant was deeply, deeply flawed and unconstitutional and should never, ever happen again. Yeah. Alan, I've got about less than a minute left, but I am curious about the election relating to Joe Biden. Look, you're you know, a liberal, a Democrat, uh, the, the radical left in, in, the, in the party seems like they want to take it over. Joe Biden seems to be at the gate, maybe saying stop. But at the same time, he's got he's kind of capitulated to some of this stuff. Well, what's your sense? I mean, where are you on Biden in, in this election? Well, I'm not disclosing who I'm voting for. Only my wife knows. But uh, uh, I do hope that uh, whoever is the president will marginalize the extremes of their party. Uh, the Democrats need to have the squad, people like Ilan Omer, uh, who is an overt anti-Semite, marginalized. And I'm worried that the Democratic Party is allowing the extremes to become mainstream. So that is, for me, a factor in my vote in this election. But there are many factors. Alan Dershowitz, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
All right. The podcast, by the way, is called The Dur Show, uh, which is his new podcast. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts and all that good stuff there. All right. When we come back, uh, we head to the White House to get some answers on the COVID-19 relief bill. Is there progress or is it dead in the water? We're going to talk to a top White House official about exactly that because they're back at the negotiating table. Back in the Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, the elusive COVID-19 stimulus bill. What exactly is going to happen between the White House and the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, Steve Mnuchin, the whole ball of wax? Let's get some answers. Try to get some answers uh, from the White House. Joining us now is the assistant to the president and acting director of the Domestic Policy Council, Brooke Rollins. Uh, Brooke, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Well, so glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with this. Uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, says, look, these next 48 hours are crucial. It's important to get a deal done. What, what is your sense uh, whether or not a deal could be done? Uh, what, what's your sense at this point? Well, here's what I will tell you, that it isn't for lack of a lot of trying on behalf of this president and this White House on a deal. Uh, I know our chief of staff, Mark Meadows, our president, our treasury secretary, Steve Mnuchin, have been nonstop, nonstop trying to get some sort of relief for the American workers. So it has been sort of at every corner. It has been a little bit of a, a pushback from the Democrats. But uh, but I hear that they're a little bit closer than they've been and every hour, maybe a little bit closer. And, and so we'll continue to fight the good fight for our people. Hey, Brooke, what's the sticking point on all of this? So we've heard about state and local funding. Is, is it a number situation at this point? What's going on exactly? You know, I am not privy to the actual negotiations, but what I do know is that our idea and our approach and what the White House is really focused on is the actual pandemic and those who are really being hit the hardest by the pandemic are small business owners, our workers, especially those on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. What can we do to ensure that they can survive this pandemic that is not their fault that came directly to us from China? That's what we're focused on. What the Democrats have served up has been a little bit more of just sort of a free-for-all, lots of spending here, lots of spending there, not really focused on the pandemic relief. So trying to come together and trying to do what's best for the American people, that's been a that's been a real sticking point for, I know, for our side and for this president's focus on the pandemic and helping those who need it the most. Brooke, I know the last time I checked, uh, we're all here in Washington, and that means politics and politicians uh, mean something, unfortunately, <laughs> at times. Uh, what about the <laughs> politics of this? I mean, I, we're hearing that Mitch McConnell would want to possibly postpone this till after the election. Nancy Pelosi herself has said that she doesn't necessarily see this huge rush to get it done. What's, what's your sense? 
You know, all I know is from the White House side and from the president's approach that we are working feverishly, relentlessly to try to get something to the American people. Election, no election, that is neither here nor there for this president. It really is what can he do for the people today at this hour, at this minute. Unfortunately, there are other pieces to the puzzle, as you just mentioned. And so I think the strategy from our side is we just keep powering forward, looking for a deal, working toward a deal, and, uh, and hopefully everyone else will follow. Okay, fair enough. Hey, Brooke, let me ask you about health care uh, for a moment. Uh, talk to me about what the president's plan specifically is going to be, uh, I, I would say, for the rest of this term. Who, who knows exactly how long, well, we know how long this first term is going to last, but what, what should Americans expect for, uh, regarding health care moving forward here? Well, thank you for that opportunity. You know, I keep hearing the Democrats and the left say, well, the president doesn't have a health care plan. That could not be farther from the truth. This president from day one has had a health care plan. He rolled out a specific plan about a month ago in Charlotte for term two, and that plan is more choice, lower cost, and better care for all Americans. And it's extraordinary to see what's happened in, in just four years. Medicare premiums are down 34% on average across the country, 50% or more in some of our states. Obamacare, which again, we don't necessarily agree with Obamacare. We would like to replace it with something that serves the American people better, that protects pre-existing conditions better. But while we've had it, while it was handed to us, premiums have come down. More choice has happened in Obamacare. Price transparency, surprise medical billing, telehealth, focusing on some of the, the major diseases that really affect so much of our population, kidney disease, HIV, uh, pediatric cancer, go on and on and on, sickle cell anemia. So this president, I believe, has done more for health care than any other president. His accomplishments are so long, but we're really just getting started. So the idea that we're putting forth a plan that does include more choices, better care at a lower cost for all Americans will win every time. And, and I'll finish by saying this about health care. Joe Biden and the left wants to put government and bureaucrats in charge of your health care. This president is singularly focused on putting patients and doctors back in charge of the health care system. Yeah, and Brooke, I think the concern, at least Democrats, the way they explain it, that if, you, if you're in the, the courts trying to fight and bring, take down Obamacare, if you will, then pre-existing conditions go with it. And if you don't have a plan to permanent or to replace the pre-existing conditions, there's that window of time where pre-existing conditions might not be covered. What, what's the reaction to, to that? The reaction is this, this president has absolutely guaranteed, and whether you like him or not, promises right. made, promises kept, he has made a promise to the American people that those with pre-existing conditions will be covered. Let me say this though, only about three million people in the Obamacare exchanges are there because of pre-existing conditions. We have about a hundred million people in this country with pre-existing conditions as currently defined in the law. So really less than 1% of Americans are on the Obamacare exchanges because of a pre-existing conditions. Listen, there's $1.8 trillion set aside for Obamacare. There is plenty of money to not only make sure they're covered, but to make sure they're covered in a better, more effective and more fair way than they ever were under Obamacare. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about Amy Coney Barrett. A big vote tomorrow in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the final vote seems to be on that Monday, the 26th or so of next week. Uh, what's, what's the view from inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in terms of the future with an Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court? Well, I tell you, as 1600 Pennsylvania is pretty excited about judge, soon to be justice, Amy Coney Barrett, not to count too many eggs before they hatch, but, but nevertheless, and, and to see the American people come alongside, you know, just a month ago, so many of our people, uh, so many people in America didn't think that either we should 
confirm her right now or go through this right now. Now we've seen the majority of Americans swing in our direction, even Democrats who see this amazing accomplished woman uh, with her beautiful family of seven children, one of the leading, you know, keenest intellects out in our legal world today. Uh, it's really encouraging, I think, and, and frankly, the opportunity to put someone on the Supreme Court that's going to focus on the Constitution and that is going to focus on the founders intent of, you know, what the words actually mean and not legislate from the bench is a, it's a real blessing. So we're really excited. Brooke Rollins, always a pleasure to see you. And thanks for joining me from the White House. You today. too. All right. My beautiful. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank bye bye. You, by the way, beautiful day there. 75 and sunny in the nation's capital. Usually it's gloomy, if you know what I mean. I mean, it is the swamp after all. All right, when we come back, uh, American Jews, how are they going to vote in 2020? All right, we know the answer, right? They're going to vote Democrat. We know that. But what's the breakdown specifically? And could Donald Trump actually benefit in battleground states when it comes to American Jews? For example, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Bears watching. We're going to talk with someone who will break down those numbers when we come back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back, everybody, to the Water Cooler. All right, the uh, Jewish vote in America, Biden versus Trump. Could it make a difference in key battleground states? We want to unpack all of that. And joining us now is Jason Isaacson, uh, Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer for the American Jewish Committee, the AJC. Uh, Jason, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Well, talk to me. Uh, what are some of the findings that you have over at AJC as it relates to the 2020 uh, vote uh, when it comes to American Jews in this country? Well, so in the AJC's latest uh, survey, and we've been surveying American Jews on a range of issues for many years, uh, we find that 75% of the Jewish community would vote for Joe Biden, and 22% would vote for President Trump. Um, if you look at favorability, unfavorability ratings, um, it's an even sharper split. Uh, you have 73% of American Jews telling us that they strongly disapprove of President Trump, 15% strongly approve. So. Um, this is, this is consistent with, but maybe a little sharper than the general split that occurs um, every four years in the Jewish community. By the way, a community that is by no means monolithic. I'm looking at, at my screen right now and I see an Orthodox uh, community that uh, feels very differently, uh, is more solidly pro-Republican, uh, quite definitely solidly pro-Trump, but the majority of the Jewish community uh, feels uh, very differently. Right. And so what what about 2016? I mean, Hillary, what did she did at least over what she do about over 70 percent, I believe, of the Jewish vote. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the, your sense? Right. Yeah. The Pew uh, survey on um, from the exit polls was, I think, 71 percent for, for Hillary, mm -hmm. uh, 24 percent for, uh, for for Trump. Uh, so Trump is roughly in the same place. Uh, you know, there's a margin of error in all of these samples, all of these surveys. But it's. Um, it's roughly in the same place. It hasn't moved past uh, the kind of at the, at the most a quarter of the Jewish community. You know, Jason, that's interesting because with let's be honest, with all the anti-Semitic headlines from media outlets coming against President Trump, the fact that he would be, you know, right around the same 
uh, number. It's, it's just shocking, not shocking, but just so interesting to me that Trump just, nothing seems to kind of affect him much in the polls. He, he's always where he's at in the polls, and then, of course, comes election night, and then who knows exactly what happens. Well, yeah, of course, it is an open question. And, and as you pointed out, just as you opened this segment, um, the Jewish community is tremendously significant in a number of uh, battleground states. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be decisive in a number of battleground states, in, including Pennsylvania, certainly Florida, uh, possibly Michigan, possibly uh, possibly others. But uh, but we're watching closely to see how that, how that plays out. But yes, you know, um, it's true that this is an administration that has shown again and again for almost four years its support for Israel. Uh, and, and it's recognized in our poll that even while there is general pretty significant opposition to the president uh, in, the, in the Jewish community uh, in terms of the election, there is a recognition that there's been progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front. There's the, the, a closer margin between President Trump and, and uh, Vice President Biden on the issue of advancing U.S.-Israel relations in the next administration than there is on all of the other issues that, uh, that American Jews were asked about, on race relations, on unity of the nation, on fighting the pandemic, on fighting terrorism, on anti-Semitism as well. Um, Biden wins overwhelmingly. But on the issue of U.S.-Israel, um, Trump does better, but still underwater. Right, still underwater, but the fact that he does better on the U.S.-Israel relations, it makes you wonder if that 25% is at 25%, basically, because of that. that that's a key issue there, uh, and I wonder if he didn't have that issue, if his numbers would really be underwater. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, on the issue of unify, who's the best position to unify the country, uh, Biden is like 79%. Uh, it's four-fifths of the, of the, of the community. Yeah. You, you know, uh, I grew up Jewish. Uh, I, you know, I grew up as a reformed Jew. Uh, so I, I get the liberal Democrat mentality. I understand that why, why Democrats uh, or excuse me, why many American Jews do vote Democratic. But c- can you explain a little bit about uh, how Jews and the Democrat Party kind of are a bit simpatico together, at least from a reform standpoint? When it gets into conservative, it becomes a little bit more dicey. And definitely on the orthodox scale, it's the exact opposite. But, but reform Jews are a, a real significant factor uh, in American politics when it comes to the Jewish vote. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, look, I think there's a long history of American Jewish identification with uh, causes of social justice. Uh, Jews were very active in the civil rights movement going back to the you know, early part of the last century. Uh, it's just been a part of the kind of the Jewish ethic in many ways. So uh, it's not surprising that there would be identification with the party that, that projects those, uh, those, those issues more, more than the other does. Um, at the same time, again, it has to be said that the community in many places uh, is active. There are active uh, Jewish Republicans. Uh, of course, there's a Republican Jewish coalition. Um, in fact, I'll be uh, hosting a, a, a debate tomorrow on HAC for the head of the Republican Jewish coalition and the, her, his counterpart uh, in, the, in the Democratic Party. Um, Jews have strong feelings and strong involvement on a whole range of issues. But yes, you're right that uh, throughout the last uh, certainly half century or so, um, you've seen a, an overwhelming uh, split uh, on the, on the, on, toward the Democratic Party. And you also, also must say that um, on presidential elections, we have seen a range from roughly 39 percent of yeah, uh, I think you're frozen. D- don't take that the wrong way, but, but I do think you are 
pretty much frozen as it relates to the Jewish vote. Now, the good news for Joe Biden is that uh, that vote is not frozen at all. I mean, he is going to do 75 percent. And so we'll have to come back and talk to Jason Isaacson another time. But I can tell you it's very interesting if you look at 2016, where Donald Trump's Jewish vote number was 21 percent. Now, Hillary did 71 percent, but Donald Trump did 21 percent. If he's up to 25 percent, well, hold on for a second, folks. That means he's potentially increasing his American Jewish support in this country. And once again, not by much, but look, a couple percentage points. And let's also understand that the Jewish vote in America is only about 4% or so. But at the same time, key battleground states, he talked about it, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania are three key ones, especially in Florida. What I'll be watching actually on election night is Palm Beach County. Watch for that. Now, once again, not that Donald Trump is going to do well in Palm Beach County, but how good will Joe Biden do? I mean, is he going to do pretty well there? He needs to do well in Palm Beach County. As a matter of fact, I was talking to one Republican source tonight who says they'll be watching that county specifically as it relates to Biden, because if Biden is doing better than Hillary Clinton down there in Palm Beach, that's exactly a lot of American Jews live down there. That's going to be good news for Joe Biden if he's doing better than Hillary Clinton. That should be a barometer of that state. And when we come back, Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Arizona, Maricopa County. He is an American legend. Matter of fact, he writes about it in his new book. We'll talk with him next. He is like a modern day John Wayne. Sheriff Joe Arpaio served as sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona for nearly 25 years. You don't want to mess with Joe. He's no Joe Blow for sure. And he's now out with a new book. It's called Sheriff Joe Arpaio, an American legend. By the way, talk about law and order. When you look that term up in the encyclopedia, his picture definitely pops up, along with Trump, of course. And, of course, who reads encyclopedias anymore? Anyhow, that's besides the point. We want to bring in Sheriff Joe. He joins us now. Sheriff, thanks for being here. Congratulations on your new book. Well, thank you. Well, tell us. Tell us about the book and why you wanted to write it. Why are you writing uh, Why you can't read the book? Uh, the book is, uh, I think you asked that question. You come a little scratchy. It must be the weather. Uh, the book uh, I put out, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, uh, an American legend. Uh, and sold in Amazon. But the reason I did that is very difficult to get my story out, especially with the uh, the news media. And I talk about the Obama birth certificate, the uh, biased judges, how they went after me, wiretapped me, uh, Obama and Holder, uh, they took office, went after me, it took them uh, almost a year to get me on a Mickey Mouse contempt of court charge. So a lot of stuff in that book, very, very sensitive. Same people that are going after uh, our great president, my hero, Donald Trump, went after me, including the Russian expose. Same people that went after me gave the money to uh, Hillary, who gave it to Steele, the Steele report. And it outlines everything. And, of course, the birth certificate is another situation that's tied up with that. And then the federal court that went after me and took, uh, what, eight eight years by Obama and Biden to get me on a contempt of court with no jury trial. That's it. That's very interesting with the connection with the federal judge 
in Covington, Burling, where Holder came from, to go after me. So I'm a little uh, discouraged. I'm discouraged at the uh, many Republicans that have given money to my Democrat opponent that had $3 million from Soros. And I'm talking about head owners of all these football teams and baseball here in Arizona, every sports team. The owners gave money to my Democrat opponent who took $3 million, also took money from the law firm I was just talking about mm -hmm. that went to uh, deliver that money. I can go on, on, on and on and on. So I'm discouraged and... Uh, I'm out there helping the, our president, and as I said, he's my hero. Never had a hero before, and I understand what he's going through. He's the same actors try to get rid of me. J Sheriff Joe, tell me why he is your hero specifically, so you can explain that. And also, tell me about Arizona. It's a very important state for him to win. Uh, are you concerned that the Democrats may come in and, and win that state? I'm concerned about the Democrats. You're coming in scratchy, but I, I, I'll just guess what you said. I think you talked about Arizona. Yes. Uh, Arizona is a important state now for our president. He won it uh, in 2016 by about 3%. Uh, percent. Uh, but uh, he's working hard. He's been here several times. His family's been here several times. And I still believe he has a large Hispanic population that is supporting him, regardless of what you hear. Uh, so when I introduced him in uh, 2015, I'll never forget what I said. There's a silent majority out there. And believe me, that silent majority is still there. And that's going to shock a lot of people come uh, Election Day. Let me ask you, Sheriff Joe, I don't know if you can hear me, but what do you think of Martha McSally? She's in trouble out there in Arizona. You think Martha she's going to win? I think she's going to win. You mentioned uh, McSally. Uh, she's got a tough race. Uh, the uh, president is supporting her. She's important uh, in this respect. Regardless of how you feel about it. We need her in Washington. We need her in the Senate. Because... The president needs every Republican senator that he can get. So we have to make sure the people here vote for uh, Senator McSally. Sheriff Joe, let me ask you about this book. Bottom line, what do you want people to take away from this book? What's the, is, there, is it an uplifting message or is it a very concerning message about the state of our country today? Well, uh, I think he asked me about the book. So, yes, and the message, and the message you want to send in this book. Well, the message uh, to send out is to protect and defend and vote for our president. That's my whole mission in life right now, is to do everything I can to get the president uh, reelected. That's the mission. That's what uh, I hope and I have great confidence he's a tough guy he's not a loser and he's going to survive that's my confidence i have in him that he did it in 2016 
and he's going to do it again. And when he gets reelected, if he thought he did a great job now, which he did, wait for the next four years for all those critics that are afraid that he's coming back. I got news for him. Have fun blasting him now. But then when he comes back, I wonder what you're going to say. And I'm going to say, leave him alone. Let him do his job. The people want him back. And quit messing with him, lying about him, accusing him. And I'm talking about the Democrats plus Republicans, plus Republicans that turned on him. Disgusting generals and all these guys don't understand when you serve a CEO of a business yeah. and that CEO doesn't like the employees, he fires them. And the same way with the president, he's the CEO, he's the commander in chief. And sure, you're sure. supposed to do what your boss tells you to do. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. That's and my philosophy in my career of 58 years. Sheriff Joe Arpaio, Really appreciate your time. Fantastic. Good luck with the book. When we come back, we're going to talk about the media. There's always something to say about the media. Back in a Welcome back, everybody, to The Last Sip. All right, some analysis and some commentary and a little bit of news because I want to bring in a clip that I did, uh, I don't know, about a month or so ago with Franklin Graham. I interviewed him, uh, and we talked about whether or not, not is Donald Trump just ready and president for such a time as this, but did God literally put Donald Trump in office? I know. I get it, folks. It's controversial. Uh, but he believes that God did put Donald Trump uh, in office for such a time as this. But that begs the question, well, wait a minute. If he loses and doesn't get a second term, then what? Here's his answer. Uh, on this president, you know, I have asked before about is, has God put Trump in office for such a time as okay. this? And there are many folks that believe obviously, well, obviously he has. What happens if he loses? Then, then, then what, what's going to happen here exactly? Well, first of all, uh, he's going to lose uh, at some point, I mean, uh, he's in 24 he's, years, 36. Well, I mean, he's uh, just his age. I mean, he's. I think God brought him here for this season, uh, for these four years. I'm just asking that God would uh, spare this country for another four years to give us a, a little bit more time uh, to do the work before the storm hits. And I believe the storm is coming, and uh, we, you're going to see uh, Christians uh, attacked. You're going to see uh, churches closed. Uh, you're going to see uh, a, a real hatred expressed toward people of faith. Uh, that's coming. And, and Jesus told us, he said, you will be hated uh, by all people because of me. And if we're going to stand for the name of Christ, the world will hate us. And, uh, and that's coming. Uh, right now in the last time in my lifetime, it's been popular to be a Christian. Uh, when Jimmy Carter became president, he was, you know, born again president. Uh, Chuck Colson wrote his book, uh, Born Again, and uh, that was popular. Mm -hmm. But we're now shifting, and our country is now at a point where Christians are looked down on because of how we're treated in the media, mm -hmm. and it's going to get worse. So you're saying it's coming, whether or not Trump loses now or gets a second term, at some point, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming, yes. Yeah. 
Franklin Graham, uh, giving it to you straight, that's what a lot of evangelical Christians believe in this country. Uh, and look, uh, we can also tell you this, that the way evangelicals see it is that Donald Trump was put in office for such a time as this. And guess what? If the truth serum was injected into evangelicals, they know as well that Barack Obama was put in place by God for such a time as this because they read the Bible and they understand that God orchestrates all events for his good, even with Donald Trump. Back in And welcome back to The Big Show, which we call The Water Cooler. All right, time now to get uh, more on justthenews.com, what's going on on the website, and beyond that, just kind of what's going on in Newsland. Not that we don't do news here, of course we do. Uh, let's bring in Nick Ballacy, uh, our uh, Just The News senior correspondent. Uh, Nick, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, well, let's talk Trump and Fauci. This is like a Spanish novella at this point. Uh, what, what's going on? Uh, tell, tell us about the back and forth between these guys. Yeah, so President Trump, when he's asked about Fauci, he usually talks about, at least as of late, how Fauci was initially opposed to widespread mask wearing. And then later on in the pandemic, he changed his position. So Trump often highlights that when he's asked about if he's pleased with Fauci or not at this point. And then Trump also points out the travel to China the restrictions he put in place. He, he says that Fauci was actually against that uh, when he decided to do it. So he points to those two things. Fauci, at this point, has not actually gone back at Trump. Uh, he doesn't want to make anything personal, it looks like, uh, any, any specific criticism. Uh, so right now it's kind of just Trump saying, also privately, apparently on a conference call with campaign officials, he was saying Fauci's a disaster. He hasn't said that in public. Mm -hmm. But most recently, Trump said, look, I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to hurt him. He's been there for like 300 years. That's what Trump said. You know, Fauci's been in the government for a long time. So it looks like this may come to an end because Trump's got to focus on, you know, his message in the home stretch of the presidential campaign here. Right. And, you know, Fauci, you got to give him some credit for some discipline. The guy's from Brooklyn, New York, uh, and two New Yorkers. And you know he wants to say a few things, but he tries to be as diplomatic as he possibly can. Yeah, up to this point, that's that's been Fauci's approach, it looks like. And I think Republicans behind the scenes, from what I'm hearing, they just want President Trump to talk about what he's accomplished over the last uh, four years and talk about what his agenda is going forward and contrast it mm -hmm. to uh, Biden's. And when he gets yeah. involved in these spats, like with with someone like Fauci, who right. people on both sides aren't very critical of, at least up to this point, uh, people uh, in the party wonder why he's not focusing more on his messaging uh, going forward with the campaign. Well, Nick, I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for all the good work you do. Appreciate it. All right, on the show tomorrow, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana. He'll be here. Rick Klein from ABC News, the political director as well. Big show, big water cooler. See you tomorrow.